Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine and More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Mr. Meadows' testimony will bear on another key question before this committee. Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceedings to count electoral votes? Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Happy holidays to all. But to quote the New York Times from this week, across the world, COVID anxiety and depression take hold. So competition is heavy for the Grinch who stole Christmas in 2021. And the nominees are Mark Meadows, referred to the Department of Justice for criminal contempt, but not before the January 6th committee aired his explosive communications with members of Congress and Trump insiders surrounding the January 6th insurrection. Jim Jordan, outed as the member who texted Meadows, arguing that Vice President Pence, quote, should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all, close quote. Joe Manchin, who after months of dithering and playing both sides, seems determined to be a roadblock to the Build Back Better bill and the lifting of the filibuster to allow voting rights reform, which he supports and which cannot otherwise pass. Or maybe it's an inhuman nominee, Omicron, which is proving to be more disruptive and prolific than we thought and is bringing an exhausted country halfway back to the dislocated lifestyle of 2020. And of course, you can never count out perennial favorite, Donald J. Trump. As judges in this competition, we welcome this week a fantastic panel of some of the country's most well-known and astute political commentators. And they are David Frum, a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of 10 books, most recently, Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. He served as the speechwriter for President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2002. You can follow him on Twitter at David Frum. David, so good to see you back. It's been several months. Yes, thank you. John Lemire, the host of Way Too Early on MSNBC and a political analyst for both that network and NBC News. He is also the newly appointed White House bureau chief for Politico. His book, The Big Lie, Election Chaos, Political Opportunism in the State of American Politics After 2020, is due to be published in the fall of 2022. Before joining Politico recently, John was White House reporter at the Associated Press, where he covered both the Trump and now the Biden administrations. John Lemire, welcome back to Talking Feds. I'm glad to be here. And Carol Leonig, a national investigative reporter focused on the White House and government accountability at the Washington Post and an on-air contributor to MSNBC, This year, not much was happening, and she managed to write two books, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year with Phil Rucker. Talking Feds listeners will remember a great episode with Phil and Carol about that. And Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. 
Carol won a Pulitzer Prize in 2015 for her work on security failures and misconduct inside the Secret Service. She's also a three-time winner of the George Polk Award for Investigative Reporting. Carol, thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to join your award-winning panel. (laughs) There you go. Uh, We were talking before about how relentlessly bad the news is. Let's jump in with the January 6th Select Committee, which seemed to move directly from second to fourth gear this week. So most explosively, in the debate to refer former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to the DOJ for criminal contempt, the committee published a series of communications showing desperate but fruitless attempts from his strongest allies, Congress, Fox News, family, to get Trump to call off the dogs. What did this tell us, these revelations from the committee, about where the committee is and where it's going? I think it's an important and critical week. People will look back on for the committee and say, oh yeah, that's when it shifted. Two things. One, you see the hypocrisy of a lot of Republicans who insisted that, to the public at least, and to their supporters, that they rely on to get reelected, that, wow, this election was rigged and that January 6th thing wasn't that big a deal. That thing that we saw on television, all the violence, that wasn't that horrendous. Actually, between 1.30 and 5 o'clock on January 6th, they were privately confiding to each other, to Mark Meadows, to the president. It was horrendous. And they were pleading for the president to stop it. I think the other key thing that this week showed in the committee was they're zeroing in on Donald Trump. Now, we knew that, right? Every good prosecutorial-minded investigative committee is going to zero in in concentric circles towards the, the big boss. But here we see Liz Cheney asking the central question from the dais, and it is purposeful. And it is, did the former president corruptly obstruct our democracy and the constitutional duty to certify the election and peacefully transfer power. Let's stick with that for a second, because she said it, but she went into this lawyer speak all of a sudden, where she said, did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes, as was immediately apparent to lawyers and quickly apparent to everyone else? That comes straight from a federal statute, 18 U.S.C. 1512. And by the way, uh, late breaking news, a Trump judge endorsed it as uh, applicable to the January 6th insurrection just this week. And it felt like a lightning bolt to me when Cheney announced and you suddenly realized, holy cow, they're really looking at a criminal referral involving Donald Trump. It did seem to telegraph that at least a little bit. You're right. It did come as a surprise in some ways. It's also, I think, what we remember it as the week that the committee sort of became more political. We heard Liz Cheney in a series of tweets really defend their actions and say, look, we've been doing these things. It's a response to the criticism from some that felt like they, they were too slow. We know there's a ticking clock here. They need to get this job done before the midterms because a real chance the House is going to fall into Republican hands who will probably scuttle the investigation. Some want to have it done well before the midterm, so it wouldn't be in political season during an election year. So I think there were some defensive measures there. We have heard certainly more and more from the members of the committee 
nearly every day talking about what they're doing. And I think these text messages really painted a picture, the Meadows messages, of just how dire that day was. And some of the former president's most ardent supporters, including members of Fox News, or media, who in public had been downplaying the severity of that day privately, were deeply concerned. Even the president's eldest son texted Meadows to say, look, tell my dad to knock this off. And I'll just note as an aside, Donald Trump Jr., having reached his father through Mark right, Meadows, had, right. some, had some real amazing. Kendall Roy succession <laughs> yeah. vibes to it. But jokes aside, I, I think it, it painted a picture, uh, again, for Americans of how bad that day was. But I think for the most part, we've retreated as a country into its respective corners about January 6th. And I don't know that this will change too many GOP minds. I have always had the same outlook on all of these Trump scandals, whether it was Mueller and whether it's now January 6th. They are systematically deformed by the American political system's determination to convert political stories into legal stories. And when you are reading the text of the United States Code, you've lost the plot. What the January 6th committee ought to be doing, in my mind, the same thing as the Russia investigation, is explaining to the public mind in ways the public can understand just what happened. Regardless of whether it fits some criminal statute or not, or whether you can meet the burden of proof for an indictment and a jury, what Americans need to know, this attack on Congress was the most spectacular act of domestic violence since Reconstruction. The assassination attempt by Puerto Rican terrorists on Congress in 1954, that was surreptitious. That was a couple of guys who snuck guns into Congress and opened fire and people were hurt and it was terrible. But it didn't challenge the authority of the state because they smuggled the guns in. They didn't brandish them. This was a mass attack on the American legislature. Nothing like it has been seen in living memory. And really, the comparisons go back to the Reconstruction era. That's the first thing, a violent attack on Congress. The second was, it is now clear, and those text messages confirm it, it's always been clear, it's never been in doubt, the president wanted it. The president incited it, the president encouraged it, the president demanded it at the end of his speech, and while it was happening, the president enjoyed it, supported it, and refused his own son's call. If there's one headline, it's, the president did this. That's the headline to take from this. And I don't care whether that's a crime or not, the president did it. That thing you saw, Trump did it. He wanted it. He supported it. Why? Because he hoped to overturn an election by violence. It was a stupid plan. It wasn't going to work. Even if Trump supporters had done what Trump wanted and apprehended Vice President Pence and the Speaker of the House and somehow menaced or tortured them or murdered them or whatever Trump had in mind for them to do, it wouldn't have altered the outcome. But the fact that it was a stupid plan, an unworkable plan to overturn an election by violence, doesn't take away what it was. It was a plan to overturn an election by violence to keep dictatorial power in the president's hand. Whatever cockamamie scheme he had in mind, we know it couldn't work. He didn't know that. He believed it could. And that's why he incited a crowd to attack the legislature. I want that engraved on people's consciousness. This was a violent attempt to overthrow the government by the president of the United States, stupidly, incompetently, in a way that wasn't going to work. But that doesn't exculpate him. That makes him a, a, a dumb monster, but still a monster. Just on the committee for a second, I think they're operating on different levels at the same time. And the product, I think they intend to unveil first through hearings and then through report might, in fact, be more narrative driven and less legal nerdy. We'll see. But I think there was an independent kind of value and maybe even a sweetness that Liz Cheney is the one carrying it after the brutal treatment she's received from everyone that they let this mini explosion out. But to me, they're operating a lot behind the scenes and they've been playing it fairly smart. And they're really looking toward what will be the most memorable here, which is the kind of 
Klieg-like moments of actual witnesses. And on that, they could have had Meadows as the sort of star turn. Does this take Meadows out of the game completely? And if DOJ doesn't agree to charge him criminally, and I'll just wear my lawyer's hat. It's a rare show where I'm the only one. It's a harder decision for DOJ to make. How big a blow will that be to the committee and the presentation that's coming? I guess I probably wouldn't jump to the presumption that DOJ won't handle Meadows a lot the way they handled Steve Bannon. I think the executive privilege that Meadows claims is like as if he's the chief of staff still to the current president and acting as if they're in a star chamber where they just get to decide without looking at any law books, which is what they did in numerous instances during the Trump presidency, just claim executive privilege willy-nilly when even their own lawyers were saying, yeah, actually, I think I got to go and hear the questions before you can make that claim. You may remember Donald Trump and Meadows agreed that they would claim executive privilege and no government employee could testify about the Ukraine president call. You know, I want you to do me a favor, though. All of those government employees had to testify because that executive privilege claim was so flimsy. Meadows has made his executive privilege claim Swiss cheese now by writing a book in which he discusses some of these conversations with the president. He's not the chief of staff today, nor is Donald Trump the president today. So I would just sort of dispute the presumption, and I think that it's necessarily going a different way. Let me push back briefly and then see if John or David has other views. So first of all, the committee very wisely is steering clear of the executive privilege point. And that's why they proffered those texts, which are clearly not privileged, something between him and Congress. They said again and again, we're not asking you to comment on anything privileged. And that was strategic because even though the courts have ruled now in the D.C. Circuit against Trump and in favor of the Biden claim, it hasn't been totally stitched up. They're sort of on the five yard line. And as a criminal charge, I think they want to take that out. The problem in a lawyerly way is there is actually these famous OLC memos, like the one that's saying the president can't be prosecuted, that does say for two or three people, and the chief of staff would be among them, maybe they can not be even called to show up. That's going to be the thing that Garland is going to wrestle with. But I take your point, Carol. Let me just ask, though, let's say for whatever reason they don't go along And now Meadows has been sort of taken out of that proceeding. Big loss for the committee or since they have other ways of proving most things, not such a big deal. Do you think there still may be more negotiations afoot to get him in the chair? That's to me not the end state. The end state is to find out what happened, which I have a pretty good idea of. Meadows' testimony isn't going to be super helpful one way or the other. And putting Meadows into more legal jeopardy for maybe lying to Congress or arguing about executive privilege or Fifth Amendment. I'm not interested in that. What I want to see is a narrative report from this committee, like the one the Senate Intelligence Committee produced, that nails the case. What the Senate Intelligence Committee did was the work that Mueller either 
was prevented from doing or for his own internal reasons declined to do or was dissuaded from doing. They told us the story or as much of the stories we're going to get until Trump's business files are open of what happened between Trump and Russia and left no doubt that Trump was pursuing a giant payday from Vladimir Putin while advancing Vladimir Putin's interests inside American politics. That's our story. And crimes may have been committed along the way, but we know the truth. And I think they need to do that. They need to put on the written record what happened that day, that the the president incited an attack on the government to overturn an election so that he could keep power lawlessly by force. That's what we need to know. This line about how in the history books, every president is known for one or two things, Washington, father of the country, Lincoln saved the union and freed the slaves, FDR, Dr. New Deal, Dr. Win the War. The the line we need to engrave for Donald Trump is try to overthrow the Constitution by violence. David, you said this a couple different ways, and I'm captivated by it. But I want to also stress, as a journalist, I know your specialty and your amazing ability to communicate the narrative and your emphasis on that as an activist and an advocate. And as a journalist, I have to say, I feel like so far I know what Donald Trump incited, encouraged, and wanted to happen. But I still thirst, even though I've looked at this three different ways and three different intensive drill down endeavors to dig into this and investigate it, even though I've done that three times, I still feel there are unanswered questions about the degree to which he understood, knew, or encouraged the violence. We know what he wanted. We know his bully campaign. We saw a lot of it in front of our eyes on television and on Twitter. And then in additional great reporting by Jonathan, me, and many of our peers, we've learned a lot more. We don't know still, and I'm assuming the FBI and or the committee is going to get more about this that they're going to share, or I'm going to get it, (laughs) uh, or Jonathan's going to get it. How much did the president know about Ali Alexander, Alex Jones' effort to literally have a riot surround the Capitol. We know from a deleted video that Ali Alexander, he deleted it after January 6th. We know from a deleted video that he promoted heavily before January 6th that he had three lawmakers. He bragged about those Republican lawmakers helping him create a plan that would create noise around the Capitol to threaten and challenge what was happening on the floor. His exact words were, so they will hear our roar from the outside. Well, what did the president know about that? And what ideas did he offer? And what conversations did he have with those lawmakers? People like Brooks, Biggs, Gohmert, Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan. What were the conversations? I'm still thirsting for that because I don't think we know that yet. I will just say to that, knowledge is good. Fuller factual records are better than thinner factual records. And even in the best explored subjects, there's always room for further investigation by historians to enlarge our image. But we have to be careful. And I don't regard myself as in any sense an activist, but I do write for a magazine and not a newspaper. So we have some different ways we present our story. But I think one of the things that has always been an asset to Trump is the conventions of the most powerful and prestigious and justifiably respected institutions in American media, Washington Post, the New York Times, AP, your institutions, means there are certain things that you can't say, no matter how obvious they are, unless they're in a court record. That's not the nature of truth. That's the nature of your institution. The Trump supporters and even some kinds of people who try to give the president a doubt often defend Donald Trump on a kind of diminished capacity basis. 
Look, for any normal, proper president, obviously he would understand that threatening the Ukrainian president is wildly, radically unacceptable. But this guy, he's such a moron and he's so ignorant. But the fact that Donald Trump is missing certain aspects of what it means to be a fully developed human or a proper president doesn't mean that when it's on TV and there's a mob chanting your name, honest to goodness, if anybody else had been president that, that day, if nothing else that worked, they would have gone there and interposed their own body between Congress and the crowd say, you have to kill me first, that my duty is to protect this institution. So help me God to the uttermost of my ability. So the fact that maybe there, there's some impairment that prevented Trump, Donald Trump from understanding exactly every detail. I mean, I was up here in Northwest DC watching it on television. I got it. Why couldn't the president of the United States who was feet away and who just sent that crowd on that attack, why couldn't he get it? He got it. He got it well enough for his moral reprehensibility to go down in history as the defining factor of his presidency. Well, to pick up on that point, I do think that that is something we have to keep coming back to, is that perhaps there'll be a criminal charge comes out of this, perhaps not. But the politics of it are where it'll be paramount going into the midterms this year and then 2024, when Donald J. Trump very well may run for president again. And if he does, he will be the overwhelming favorite to get the Republican nominee and has a real chance to win again. David can outline that in a very graphic and effective way, but at least for a significant portion of the country, that message has not sunk in. And I think it'll be interesting to see the developments here, whether the committee gets any traction. I was struck by Mitch McConnell this week saying, more than once now, it'll be interesting to see what the committee comes up with. That will matter. Now, we shouldn't give McConnell a pass here. Let's remember, he was one of the driving forces that scuttled the bipartisan committee. It was going to resemble what we saw after September 11th. The Republicans in the Senate killed that. But the fact that Mitch McConnell, someone who usually doesn't even acknowledge the House of Representatives exists, that he was go so far as to say, hmm, we need to see what comes out here, I think perhaps is a small sign of him trying to drive at least a little bit of a wedge between where he is and where he wants the Republican Party to go versus the Trumpists and the former president himself. But whether that actually leads to anything or not, we don't know. McConnell, of course, has also said he would support Donald Trump if he were to run for president again. For McConnell, there's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer runs for mayor of his town on the slogan, let somebody else do it. I have no doubt that Mitch McConnell thinks about Donald Trump almost exactly the way I do. And maybe even more because he's been exposed to more of his personality and he's been more personally abused and his family's been abused. Donald Trump called his wife a spy for China. Ted Cruz and Heidi Cruz, I'm sure they feel more strongly on the subject than, than I do. Marco Rubio, broken, beaten as he is, I'm sure there's a part of him that at two in the morning just frothes with rage. But they're all saying, let somebody else do it. And I don't think there's a one of them who is not inwardly appalled at the violent overthrow of the Constitution of the United States. I give them credit for that. They just want someone else to save the Constitution. And so that's where we are. And that's why it's so necessary to keep reminding people what the stakes are. Because as Jonathan said, Trump is the odds-on favorite for the Republican nomination. The economic situation is pretty chancy looking forward to that President Biden's health isn't great. So it's possible that Donald Trump could win. But understand what's on the ballot. What's on the ballot in 2024? Something that both of you said, I think, needs to be hammered. You know, David said, here's the narrative. We all know the president encouraged what happened. He wanted it. He encouraged it. He let it go on. But as Jonathan rightly points out, a lot of people in America are fine with what the president describes as the reasons he was doing what he was doing and his oh my goodness, I'm shocked it turned into violence. I'm shocked there's gambling in the casinos. Well, let's say a third to a half of America is fine with it. That's why I think figuring out a little more detail about what was going on in the days before is so important. But 
the McConnell piece, I also am really amazed by, not amazed by, chuckling at. You could see McConnell grinning almost gleefully behind his normal face mask, grinning at the idea that some Republican House members who have enabled and encouraged the president in the big lie will be outed. And that is what I heard in his subtext, that the next shoe to drop are a series of Freedom Caucus members and what they were doing in mid-December to January 5th. We know who they are. The committee was cagey about it, but it was going to come out in short order. And it's a cabal of six that were identified. And if Meadows is out, because Meadows is by far the best guy, because he's the one person at his shoulder the whole day, but the next best, and they may be going this way, and it's another sort of third rail, is those sick. They may be actually subpoenaing members of Congress and talk about throwing down the gauntlet. Let's leave it there for now. But as you mentioned, I think, Carol, the timeline, they're aware of it. And very soon it will be in the shadow of when they need to finish. So I think they're going to stay in fourth gear or overdrive. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we unpeel the truth about Pinot Noirs to see where the grapes shine best, Willamette Valley in Oregon or Burgundy, France. Here in the U.S., we classify our New World wines by the grape. Old World wines, like those in Europe, are classified by the region. In France, Burgundy is not only the region where Pinot Noir wines are from, but it's also the Pinot's ancestral home. No pressure, Oregon. To level set, Pinot Noir is a thin-skinned grape, which makes it difficult to grow, especially in warmer climates. Burgundy happens to have a cooler climate with ample cloud cover, making it the perfect home for Pinots. The cooler temperature allow the wines to ripen longer, giving the grapes extra time to develop more complex flavors like strawberry and dark berries to black tea and earthy minerality. Burgundy produces Pinot Noirs that are full of aromas and nuances. If we hop across the pond, we have Pinots from Willamette Valley in Oregon with similar cloud cover, climate, and soil composition as Burgundy. Oregon produces smooth and fruity wines that are slightly earthy and most definitely tasty, giving the region of Burgundy a run for its money. You can find all of these at Total Wine and More, where we have a huge selection of Pinot Noirs from Oregon to Burgundy, plus wines from every region in between. All that's left now is to reach up to our shelves and pluck one out for yourself. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, let's move to some other cheery subject. COVID, it's deja vu all over again, all over a third time. The New York Times today is talking about offices shut, holiday parties dim as a familiar feeling sinks in. It does feel like a pall over everything, no? This latest exhausting episode, how bad would you say is the effect on the national mood? I think it's significant. We see in polling that it's the number one concern of Americans. So the economy, which obviously inflation is tied to this, it certainly challenges the White House. They know that the president will be measured at the end of the day on how he manages the pandemic. That's what he campaigned upon. That's what he was elected to do, sort of turn away Trump, but also 
managed COVID-19. This new variant, it seems to be everywhere. Washington, D.C. yesterday set the highest number of cases during the pandemic. From the beginning, since March 2020, there are more cases yesterday. Certainly, yes, offices are closing down again, holiday parties. We went to a holiday party on the East Coast in the last two weeks. You probably got COVID. And if not, then those parties are about to be canceled. But there are some key differences. It's not March 2020, exactly, right? We do have vaccines. There are boosters. And it does seem, per data, that the booster is vital here to warding off this new variant. There's certainly better treatments at the hospitals. There's a suggestion the new variant, though very transmissible, may not be quite as deadly. So there are some silver linings here, but it does seem as if we're heading into a stretch over the holidays where cases are going to soar. We're going to start to see hospitalizations go up to, we just crossed 800,000 people dead in America since the start of the pandemic. And I do think it is wearing on people. As much as a percentage of the country likes to pretend the virus doesn't exist, that's the same part of the country that has not been vaccinated, perhaps, and where natural immunity seems like it's not much of a defense against this variant. That's the part of the country that's probably going to be hardest hitting it, too. Actually, John, you wrote that the administration's crashing into the limits of the power to end the nation's fight. But in the few places where it could go further, it seems unwilling to do so as of now. What's in their reach that they're not doing? There's not much else. They could certainly institute uh, vaccine requirements for domestic travel which is something they have not done yet, airplanes and trains and such. They could lean in even further on some of the vaccine mandates, although what they've proposed so far has been largely tied up in the courts. I think that, unfortunately, this is a president who is tested by the fact that COVID has become a political issue, and it has become a winning issue. Some Republicans think, Republican governors, that they want to make a defiant stance against what the administration is trying to do, where they have politicized someone like Dr. Fauci to the point where White House aides tell me that they're looking at other public figures as, as respected as Fauci is, and he'll certainly be on their waves, but they recognize that part of the country won't listen to him because he's been demonized at this point unfairly. So yeah, there is a limit to what they can do other than to push as much as they can the message we heard from the president yesterday. He said this is going to be a long winter of illness and death, I'm paraphrasing, but not by much, for those who are not vaccinated. And they're just really trying to get the shots into arms and to get Americans boosters if they haven't had them either. Joe Biden's greatest asset in the campaign of 2020 was that he's an old man from a different time when the politics of the country were less polarized and poisonous, and that he wants to return to that era that's now gone. And his greatest liability in 2021 has been that he's an old man from a different era when the politics of America were less polarized and poisonous, and he wants to go back to that time. If you had sat down with him in the transition period and said, uh, Mr. President, you have to understand, or Mr. President-elect, that one of your great problems in overcoming COVID is that your political opponents are prepared to sacrifice the lives of hundreds of thousands of their supporters, of their own supporters, in order to defeat your administration. He said, don't, don't be, I know Mitch McConnell, we play cards together. Our families go boating together. He and the governors of the great states, they would never be, kill hundreds of thousands of their own supporters to make a political point. That's ridiculous. No one would do. Well, that's what he has faced. That's what he has faced. There are things that he could do. As Jonathan said, he has the power to insist on vaccination for interstate travel. And that's not only planes and trains, but also Greyhound buses. He has a great deal of authority over that. And they could push ahead with the federal contractors, whatever the limits on their ability to use OSHA to regulate workplaces. And I, I think the courts there are way out of line, but the courts are also partisan actors we have to face. For now, I think the Supreme Court will, will come through on that. Right. There'll be a lot of casualties along the way. I mean, the Republicans are like the Soviets retreating to Moscow, sacrificing troops as they go, that they're prepared to trade bodies for time. He should push, but he's just not willing to, and the costs are very real. That speech he gave, I, I just thought it was so misjudged. 
Because what the president's trying to do is be Mr. Empathy, be Mr. Father of all the people. And so we are a polarized country. He needs to accept that. And the vaccine has become polarized. And the fact is, if you're vaccinated and boosted, you are almost certainly very safe from this variant. And if you're not, you're not. And they need a tougher message, that part of the country. Now, we have this rule in American politics. You can give a sister soldier speech to certain kinds of people. You can, like, candidate Barack Obama in 2008 tell certain people to pull up their pants. But for other people, it's just, oh, would you like a glass of juice? What do we have to do to get you to take the big bad jab? I think the president needs to understand they're not going to vote for him anyway. Slap some sense into them and make it clear to the vaccinated portion of the country that you have done the right thing and you don't have as much to fear. His strengths here really do seem ill-fitted for this particular challenge. You know, the steady, calm, older guy. You really think you need a sort of vigor and almost wartime Churchillian footing or something. Does it seem to you, Carol, that this just is a disconnect between the problem and the strengths or weaknesses of the president? I think David's point is really well taken, and I think he says it beautifully. My only issue with it is I think that the Biden team has concluded They got to worry about other things. Why poke a stick into the faces of people who already pretty much despise him? And so their political calculus is, let's get moving on the rest of our other agenda. And there's no reason to goad the bear. It is painful to watch as people get sick. And it's because somebody came into a room and decided not to be vaccinated. I'll just give one little personal story, which is, I feel like I'm a walking CDC sandwich board this season because my husband and I both got COVID. It was before Thanksgiving. And, you know, all these months we had been so careful following all the rules and getting double vaxxed and signing up for our booster. And our booster shot was basically four days from the time that we got COVID. And there were all these breakthrough cases. And even with all the care that you exercise, we got it. The good news, we didn't get very sick and it impacted our holiday plans for Thanksgiving in a sad way, but vaccination works. Another little personal message is it's depressing to see that we're not all going to return to our workplaces as quickly as I think we all can. I think what we can in January all return but most places are not going to do it in an abundance of worry that these breakthrough cases mean something more dramatic. Well, I think what the breakthrough cases mean is that most of Americans are going to get COVID before this whole thing is over. And it's going to be by 2023, probably a mild flu, just what Trump falsely claimed in the beginning of 2020. It will be that in 2023. We're all going to get it and we're all going to build immunity. And that's life. And congratulations, David. You managed to actually become a poster child on Fox News with your enough already with the vaccine deniers. They're threatening everyone. And, you know, to Carol's point, it's true. Almost everyone will be okay. It might not be so mild and temporary and a much older person. Right. I wrote an article a little while ago playing off something that had happened. I'm now going to forget what the prompt was in which I said that that vaccinated America is getting fed up. And through the early phases of this, we posted a lot of these articles at The Atlantic. There was just so much sympathy and handholding for the unvaccinated and their alienation from American life, their fears, rational or not, their politics. If you are in a traffic accident over Christmas, 
your life is in danger because of the unvaccinated. If you uh, have a heart attack, your life is in danger because of the unvaccinated. And if you're one of the older people who is vaccinated but still gets a breakthrough case and it is somewhat serious and you need some care, again, you're going to go to a hospital and find it's full of the unvaccinated. I offended the Fox people. At some point, you have to say, you know what? I don't accept this. I'm going to say some of the things that everybody is thinking about you. And you need to hear it. I don't know whether it's the effective thing. And maybe I'm wrong about that. The president himself should say it. Maybe we do need unifying national messages. But somebody needs to say, you know what? That person with the heart attack who's in a corridor because the rooms are full of people who are there almost completely voluntarily by their own bad actions and their own bad choices. Can we not express some of what we think about this? I mean, this double dose, not simply of sickness, but sort of emotional exhaustion, that thought is just so weighty. I do think there is also the concern public health experts say that the longer the virus is allowed to circulate among the unvaccinated, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere, there is a chance that the next mutation will get around the vaccines, that the next one will be more serious and even pose far more of a threat to the vaccinated and the boosted. Although even those who are vaccinated and boosted now, even a mild case of COVID, that still could be, you feel like crap for a few days and you got to quarantine and you can't work and you can't see anybody. And also none of us know the long-term health effects of this. Where does this look five, 10 years from now? That Those are all dangerous too. And the longest term effect, and that's the one that really should be over by now, and the unvaccinated prolonging this, the longest term effect is the effect on school children who face closed schools. And that's the number one political issue too, right? Yeah. But the way to think about this is, look, my children are post-school. Even anyone who is in the vicinity of this podcast, who listens to political podcasts, your kids will suffer from the closures, but you'll probably be able to drag them over the educational line in a way that they'll recover. But 50, 60 70 years from now, there are going to be Americans whose whole life trajectory was affected because they were on the cusp of dropping out of high school or not. And they were in middle school during COVID and they missed some developmental steps. And therefore, when they turned 16, they dropped out and they might have finished high school. And there they will be at the end of the 21st century in much greater poverty than they otherwise would need to be because of something that happened in 2021. If the vaccination had been taken up at the rate it was in other first world countries, we would have been in great shape in the fall of 2021 to open the schools and keep them open and protect a generation of American kids from the costs of educational disruption, which are lifelong. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. It's the holiday season, and in some parts of the country, you can be certain we'll be having the often contentious religious displays on public property. So to explain how the law works for those displays, we're really pleased to welcome Bruce Sudano. Bruce is a singer-songwriter well-known for creating songs for artists such as Dolly Parton, Michael Jackson, and his late wife, Donna Summer, as well as his own hits with the band Brooklyn Dreams. He's the founder of indie record label Purple Hearts Recording Company. So I give you Bruce Sudano on... Religious Displays on Public Property. Are religious displays on public land constitutional? During the holiday season, it's not unusual to see religious displays. For example, a nativity scene or menorah on public property. It might seem that the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, which commands that the government shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, might prohibit such displays. But courts don't see it that simply. 
Some religious displays on public property are from private sponsors. The government's role there is limited to providing a public space, a so-called public forum for different groups to erect displays. That's okay so long as the government allows all groups, religious or not, equal access to the property. In other words, the government can't display any favoritism based on religious viewpoint. Things get a lot more controversial when it's the government itself funding or organizing the display. The Supreme Court has waffled in its analysis of what falls on the unconstitutional side of the Establishment Clause in this circumstance. We do know that an unadulterated religious symbol wouldn't fly. For example, a county courthouse was forbidden from placing a nativity scene in its main staircase. Likewise, the federal government couldn't display a Lone Star of David on the National Mall. But the court has noted that some religious symbols may have secular meanings. Context is everything here. For example, the court okayed the inclusion of a religious symbol as part of a larger secular display, including reindeer and Santa. And a combination of symbols from different religions might be permissible on the ground that the display promotes tolerance and diversity. In recent years, the court has asked if an ordinary person would view the display as government endorsement or disapproval of religion. If so, the display might be unconstitutional. But the law in this area is in a state of flux. Some justices have criticized it and argued it doesn't give enough leeway for religious displays. Most recently, the court permitted Maryland to maintain a 32-foot stone cross resting on public land. The opinion skirted addressing establishment clause issues head-on by finding that the cross was grandfathered in as a World War I monument with historical value rather than an explicitly Christian symbol. It seems only a matter of time before the issue of religious displays on public property will resurface. And given the makeup of the court, it's likely we'll see greater tolerance of such displays. For Talking Feds, I'm Bruce Sudano. Thanks very much to Bruce Sudano. Bruce's latest project, Ode to a Nightingale, is derived from imagery from the work of Italian poet and filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini and was written in the aftermath of the 2020 election, drawing on the political content of those days. Let's just take a few minutes to the lay of the land in Congress as a whole. So the Build Back Better bill seems to have no chance of passing this year due to the perennial hesitations of Senator Manchin. So, John, you tweeted that there have been other politicians who've played this Hamlet role before, but Manchin has taken it to a true art form. At what point do they throw in the towel it's like the old man in the sea. You know, are they going to lose the whole thing? Well, I reported this week the frustration level in the White House has grown exponentially with Senator Manchin. The president himself is personally fond of Manchin. They've worked together on big legislation before, both in the Senate and since the president took office. But even he is tired of this. Some of his Democratic colleagues, including Dick Durbin, say he went back on his word. The child tax credit that he had signed off on a one-year extension and now has wavered on that, too. So there is real frustration there. It's not going to happen in 2021. It will have to happen in 2022. There are people I've talked to inside the administration and others on the Hill believe Democrats hope it will still happen. It might have to shrink further 
details still being worked out. The parliamentarians dealt them a blow with immigration. But it also, it might be that the Build Back Better Act takes a back seat here. Much the frustration of progressives in the House who feel like they're the ones who really got the raw deal because they made sacrifices to get that version passed only to have the conservative center from West Virginia say no. And there's a shift now towards focusing on voting rights, perhaps, but that faces the exact same obstacles. And if Manchin and Cinema they don't want to change the filibuster, then it's hard to see any meaningful happen. Pretty grim, yes. Let's say no Build Back Better or maybe just the child tax credit and no voting rights because no filibuster. Does it suddenly appear that it's a failed presidency? It's not too great to have no, as Rahm Emanuel used to famously say, points on the board. Right. Again, as a journalist, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, why didn't this get branded better? Why didn't Joe Biden and Ron Klain decide that they should call this infrastructure bill the greatest social safety net and job promoting bill since FDR? Why didn't they just call this the great American society too? Because there's amazing stuff in here for red states. There's amazing material and prescriptions for Donald Trump supporter land. And I'm sort of surprised at their inability to market it. Marketing issue, David, or deeper than that? No, they had a strategic issue, which is the Biden administration decided to govern as if they had 59 senators when they had 50 senators. They decided to govern as if they had a giant House majority when they had a thin House majority. They decided to govern as if they had had an up and down the ballot triumph in 2020, rather than a very personal defeat for Donald Trump. And everywhere else, Republicans did well. So it was all magical thinking from the start. Although it created some magic for a time, yeah. They did put some points on the board. But at this point, I have a different view from most people. I think Joe Manchin is hurting Democrats' chances in 22, for sure, because there won't be a success that will rouse there. But he is saving Biden in 24, because what the basic economics of this thing are is we have crimped and constrained supply chains. We have much slower recovery from COVID than we thought. First under Trump, because Trump passed some of these things. We're putting so much purchasing power in the hands of consumers, in the face of these constrained supply chains, that they are bidding up prices. And we've seen that with all kinds of consumer-facing prices, foodstuffs, especially meat, especially beef, cars. I don't know that it's exactly literally inflation in the 1970s sense, because what has been happening, and I'm sure everyone has noticed this in their own lives, we've been all purchasing less service and purchasing more goods. But the prices of goods are more visible to us than the prices of services. So if you continue to do this shovel out purchasing power in the face of supply constraint, what you're begging for are big Federal Reserve rate increases in 23 and 24. This is the fate of the Carter administration. Carter took power on the heels of a devastating recession, 74, 75. He did a lot of expansionary things. He had two very strong economic years, 1977, 78. But the inflation picked up and that cost Democrats seats in 78 and led to the disaster for Democrats of 1980. This may be a case where less is more. And there's a lot of purchasing power out there. And the focus should be on supply, not purchasing power. All right. We have to leave it there. We have just one minute left for our final feature of Talking Five, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And today's question is, who will be the next person to leave Fox News? I'll start. Unknown, but more than one. Brett Baer, I guess. By resignation or feet first, because COVID has been cutting a bloody swath among Fox sometime contributors who don't realize, unlike the name brand talent, that this is all a lie and a hoax and they should do as the 
name brand people do. I'll get the vaccine and lie about it. So you've had all these down the ticket talents who have been getting sick or dying. And it's tragic. They didn't get the joke in the way that all the other primetime stars do who say you can't even be on my set unless you're vaccinated. Well, that's a hard one to follow, but I'll go with unknown, but don't really care. (laughs) That's all the time we've got. Thank you very much to David, John and Carol. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we do have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. Just in the last few days, we posted discussions with known electoral expert and Harvard professor Larry Lessig on his New York Review of Books article, Why the United States is a Failed Democratic State, as well as Professor Jessica Levinson on the report of the Biden Supreme Court Commission and much more is coming. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we've got and decide if you'd like to subscribe. And starting next year, we're going to have a new tier in Patreon that will include regular question and answer sessions with me. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez. Associate producer, Olivia Henriksen. Assistant producer, Matt McArdle. Sound engineering by Adam Macias. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. And our consulting producer is Dustin Canals. Thank you very much to Bruce Sudano for explaining the tricky and timely question of religious displays on public property. Our gratitude, as always, goes out to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. All good things in 2022 and many, many years thereafter to the great Philip Glass. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.